but there there's an important moment to stop being the fledgling and really start to soar high. You know, like that was the goal is I wanted to soar way up there in the clouds if we're using a bird analogy, leaving the nest. Um, and that can be scary too, because you wonder, am I going to stop selling? Uh, are the galleries going to start to kind of not want to show my work because they're bigger and they don't, they might be weird. They might be scary. They might, they might embrace grotesque theme. Um, galleries start to go, ah, about that. You know, that, that's a challenge that the artist can face as they start to leave that fledgling stage of being an artist, a new artist, and start to move into their more mid-career, maybe. Welcome to The Bold Brush Show, where we believe that fortune favors the bold brush. My name is Laura Ungobert, and I'm your host. For those of you who are new to the podcast, we are a podcast that covers art marketing techniques and all sorts of business tips specifically to help artists learn to better sell their work. We interview artists at all stages of their careers, as well as others who are in careers tied to the art world in order to hear their advice and insights. For today's episode, we sat down with Noah Buchanan, a large-scale realist narrative painter with a deep love for the old masters, Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell. We discuss his personal hero's journey as an artist, the importance of looking within and to your past to rediscover your voice as an artist, why storytelling not only helps connect you with your buyers, but also with a piece of humanity, or the challenges the many realist painters face in the business side of art. Finally, we discuss the Big Stories exhibition that Noah helped curate, as well as his online classes and workshops. Well, welcome Noah to the Bold Brush Show. How are you today? Thanks, Laura. I'm great. It's really exciting to be here. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's always a pleasure to talk with other talented painters like yourself. So thank you for having me. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And, you know, you too, kudos. You've got some massive, you know, you're doing the narrative, like, incredible, huge paintings that, of course, a lot of us in the narrative communities can only dream of doing, uh, especially because, you know, when you're doing big paintings, you need a lot of space, uh, <laughs> which yes. is kind of hard to come by sometimes when you're, you know, uh, just starting out. So yeah, I, you are goals. <laughs> thank you thank you you're welcome um and speaking of i'm also really excited to have you because uh i think we have a sort of kindred spirit connection because i'm also a huge huge fan of joseph campbell and carl jung and you know mm -hmm. how the the light and shadow aspects and the archetypes and especially because you know when you are a narrative painter those are very key important figures to look into when you want to tell a story and you want to convey yeah. it to a public that mostly has disconnected itself from the stories that have lasted generations i feel like today people don't connect as much with i guess stories that have been told again and again and again my opinion yeah. of course but i do right. sense there's been a shift um and now the mm -hmm. storytelling has mostly been movies um which mm -hmm. we will also talk about uh, but first, do you mind giving us a little bit about you, who you are, what you do? Yeah, so um, I, um, I, you know, I've been drawing, uh, I think, since I was five years old, maybe. And so it's, it's um, drawing and painting has, has always been a part of my life um, and uh, has always been really a big part of my identity. You know, from the time I was a young child. Uh, I always kind of thought of myself as an artist, or certainly my peers did, and maybe they applied it to me. But um, I continued to be really serious about drawing and painting all the way up through high school. 
Um, and then into art school, I went to the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts in, in Philadelphia. Um, later, I went to graduate school at the New York Academy of Art. Um, I, wasn't, uh, I wasn't really intending to go into teaching necessarily, but it, I found out in graduate school that I had a real knack for doing it because a lot of my peers would come to me for, you know, for advice, for help. Uh, they'd ask me for critiques. Um, they'd ask if they could, uh, you know, hang out in my studio and work on an assignment together. And I found myself uh, in the role of of teaching a lot. And, and uh, you know, I started hearing quite a lot that, you know, you're a really good teacher. And um, I thought, well, this would be a great way to support myself as a painter, um, but also give back. Uh, and, I, and I just really, all along the way, um, having been a... Um, uh, student, an art student, for for having been a star student for many years, um, I found that I really admired those teachers of mine, and I looked at the model of their life, uh, where they were teaching a couple days a week, but then they were still painting really intensely, uh, making paintings and having solo exhibitions, uh, and I really liked that model. I really admired it. Uh, and I saw that that could be a path for myself. So I, as soon as I got out of graduate school at the New York Academy, I moved back to California and I started this dual practice of being a painter and, and a professor, teacher, instructor, whatever you want to call it, uh, of painting and drawing. And my life has been pretty consistent in that regard for the past 20 years. Um, I've been called a professor, you know, an instructor, a teacher. Um, but also an exhibiting painter. Uh, and I like, I like the balance, you know, that's really come to define uh, who I am as an artist. Um, I feel like as painters, we, uh, we are always, um, we are always kind of in the role of being students uh, and then also finding ourselves in the role of being teachers. So uh, that's kind of me in a nutshell. Uh, that's, and that covers, you know, what, the first 40 years of my life there. So. <laughs> wow. Then it's Most definitely it. a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a nutshell. Yeah. yeah. That's the quick answer. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, um, I think it's a great answer because uh, I think it touches on something that not a lot of people consider. And that is how teaching is, it can really change, not necessarily change, but it can help you grow a lot faster. Um, especially if you already have a knack for it, right? Because when you teach something, you obviously have to know your subject twice as well than what you normally would. So I think for sure, yes. if, if there's anyone out there who's hating on teaching as an, as a, as an artist, ooh, uh, you're missing out. <laughs> yeah. Because it, it really yeah. helps. No, you're, yeah. you're spot on with that. You really, you have to look way far ahead of any given lesson that you're teaching. You really have to know you have to be proficient with the content further, much further down the road, you know, like if you're yes. teaching A, B, and C, you have to be working on elemental PQ, you know, yourself. And exactly. uh, it's, you're right. It, it forces you to look deeper into your, your subject, your, your, um, your career material, you know? Yeah. 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 And I think there's also this weird misconception about teaching artists aren't selling artists because of the whole, like those who can't do teach, which obviously it's a lie i i have not right. met a single at least on on the podcast every guest i've had has taught at least once That's has right. done workshops has done yeah uh maybe uh online courses like there's 
it's and they're all doing great and they're all selling so i've seen yeah. more proof of the opposite where yeah actually oh, yeah. all the great artists teach absolutely and it goes back centuries i mean because you know we look at all all the great masters had students uh in many cases we're aware of who their students are and who they became you know you could look at the italian renaissance when you had Andrea del Sarto brought in Pontormo, Pontormo brought in Bronzino. So, I mean, these are major names. It's not like they were students that were just forgotten. But I mean, you know, even looking at some of the greatest figure painters now, like Odd Nerdrum, um, who's very much uh, in, in has a big role in teaching in his own way. And, uh, and of course, is, you know, a legend as a painter himself. So um, yes. it goes on and on. I think all of my favorite painters uh, have have or have had students yeah Absolutely. so i feel i feel good about it i i um i yeah and i i do the same like i go around talking to um uh fledgling artists coming out of art school and especially if they if they're about to ob obtain a master's degree i say you know put that degree to work for you you know uh, and and let it create a, a salary that will support your painting career you know yeah, yeah. i think it's really wise yeah. yeah. And even if, you know, even for, uh, you know, an artist that, uh, for example, like me, who came out of an atelier, not necessarily like a, a college, there are still schools that will take in, you know, oh, yeah. A, yeah. a teacher who yeah. uh, maybe doesn't have a, a master's degree. Um, just That's putting right. it out there for anyone who's listening, who's like, oh, no, I can't do it. It's like, no, yes, you can. You can. <laughs> yes, you can. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, and uh, in your nutshell, by the way, which is funny, uh, I was actually going to ask you what your hero's journey was as an artist but yeah. if you want to say that you know it's when you started painting at five then we could say it's that <laughs> yeah well i um i think the hero's journey for me started i was thinking about that um and i i feel like it somewhere around the age of of 16 i um a lot of things started falling into place for me i mean when things about identity and who i was and who people saw me as i think uh, that a lot of the artwork I was making as a teenager, they had themes to do with, they, they were themes that had to do with searching, uh, you know, uh, going on a journey, um, finding some lost secret, you know? And of course, these I'm just making these works as a kid, you know? So they weren't like great artworks or anything, but they meant a lot to me at the time. And um, I think that... Uh, going through that phase of of just you know who is my identity learning that it is to be an artist and and of course that that's just the beginning of the journey it continued on and on uh the act of finding oneself um through the pathway of being an artist and that includes not just how you're looked at in the world by your immediate peers and friends and family and then later you know bigger audiences of people but it also includes what your work is about. And that's, that's, I think for every artist, maybe that is the biggest aspect of their hero's journey is uh, there's all these years of trials and tribulation that have to do with learning skill and technique to do the kind of work you want to do. But then once you have that, the big question, the big, you know, the big minotaur in the labyrinth that's facing you is, um what what do i paint what's my subject matter what are my themes what am i saying through my artwork 
I mean, that is that is a, a shadow, a, you know, a monster. Uh, you know, it's it's a dark inner. Um, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, an, an antagonist that we all have to face as artists in grappling with. What are we going to do and say and depict in our artwork? You know, uh, so that was you know that was for me the big a big part of the hero's journey. I think that connecting it to Joseph Campbell's idea of the hero's journey, um, also for me around age sixteen. Well, I, even going back further, I mean, I had grown up with Star Wars from when it first came out, and I, you know, I'm, I'm bringing in Star Wars because it it has a strong affiliation with Joseph Campbell, you know, who actually analyzed it in terms of the classical uh, model of the hero's journey from Greek and Roman mythology. Um, I grew up with Star Wars. You know, I was born in 1976, so I mean, my first memories were looking at the myth of Star Wars, and it stayed really strong with me the whole the whole idea of the mythos of star wars and appealed to me as a little kid as a teenager and i still love it you know um but i think when i was a teenager you know i started to really i realized that one of the reasons why star wars appealed to me so much even starting at a little tiny toddler age uh were the themes of the hero's journey you know and and uh i really wanted that to I wanted the flavor of that, you know, in a broader sense, um, to inhabit my work. You know, even if I wasn't cog, I wasn't cognizant of that when I was sixteen. But I became more so as you know as I went through college, and I realized that it wasn't just this childhood um, interest in you know something that's cool with special effects and and cinema, but it it. Um, it had a much bigger implications about about psychology and mythology and philosophy, and uh, you know, and of course, of course, it really just it's fun and entertaining, but it points the way to um, to bigger historical things as well. So um, that was a big part of the process, you know, uh, just to reveal a little bit of my nerd side, uh, you know, in in my love for for Star Wars, but um, you know, it's important. I think it's important yeah. that we that we um, I think it's important for all artists to really look with seriousness at the things that excited you when you were young um, and all along the way and and going back to your roots uh, in your childhood, uh, especially things that stuck with you in strong visual ways, you know, and I think. A lot of these things might be TV shows and movies, but they might just be family photographs that you grew up with, or um, it could be the cover of an album or in images inside of the liner notes of an album that you loved when you were 12, 16, 21. Um, and though these things that, that sort of start to populate your visual memory, I think it's really important for artists at every stage of their development to go back and look at those things and say, why did that stick with me? You know, why why did that leave such an impact? And if you can figure that out, I think that's a big part of the of our hero's journey and unraveling what our subject matter is and what our content is and why why do we want to say those things? Why do we want to depict certain things like that? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I think the you're touching on one of the fundamental things, which is, you know, I 
identity, right? Which you had mentioned yeah. how when you were 16, you know, that's, I mean, I feel like all adolescents, we all go through that. Who am I uh, yeah. stage in our, in our teens? Um, but what's funny is, you know, especially when you're an artist, it is even more important. Um, as I mean, in any form of arts, right? Be it acting, be it, you know, music, mm -hmm. but in all the arts, especially for a creative career, really digging deep into the why and the who am I, right? And uh, yeah. that's actually one of my <laughs> favorite questions to ask myself all the time, because um, I've been reading a lot of books that are uh, more like Eastern philosophy. And the question of who am I is something that is so, it, like, it's, it's such a big part of, especially Buddhism, for example. Um, mm -hmm because there really is a lot of unraveling that has to be done um, mm -hmm. in order to, you know, do what Jung would call shadow work, right? Which yeah. is like trauma healing and, you know, disconnecting yourself from aspects of yourself that have gone rampant and are unconsciously destroying your life, right? So yeah, yeah. so fundamental for being a creative person to yeah. figure out what is holding me back because truly it's so funny with my students i have actually told them too where when you're in front of a canvas and you're going to paint you will be facing your demons and yeah. i don't mean the demons in the canvas i mean the demons in your head that are going to come yeah. out as you try to create and i think you know you really uh you really touched on that which of course that that hit a <laughs> that hit a point a special point for me because it's it really is yeah. um so important to look back always yeah. look back to that child self and be like who was stopping you and right. how do we allow this child self to come back out again without fear because that's yeah oh that's that's really oh i mean it's like yeah. the hero and when the hero returns home um yeah. after learning their lessons and they have to revisit yeah. that aspect of themselves um yeah which yeah very key very very key that's important work for for an artist for sure yeah yeah, I think that, um, and, I, and 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 that Joseph Campbell um, uh, talked about the you know Theseus and the Minotaur story, and uh, with a very simple, elegant quote. I can't remember. Uh, it, well, it's not so short, but it it uh, and the gist of it is that um, you know when we travel into the labyrinth, which is you know emblematic of delving into our own inner psyche. That ultimately, when we find the the monster at the core of the labyrinth that we're supposed to face as our enemy, we find out it's really just ourselves, you know, and that and and that's what's waiting for us. And um, the act of confronting that and acknowledging that and accepting that, um, you know, that sort of unravels the whole problem right there. You know, it's and then we we find the answers there. And there's also, um, I think, a, a very similar. Um, there's a similar metaphor in uh, in in. Well, I grew up uh, when I was young. I read Ursula K. Le Guin's um, Wizard of Earth Sea series, and mm -hmm. and uh, you know, there's a very there's a very sort of archetypal moment, uh, Campbellian moment, where you know the the protagonist of the story is running through the whole novel to escape the shadow that's chasing him that he himself mm -hmm. unleashed. And, um, and he, you know, it spends most of the novel trying to get away from it. But then the moment he just stops and faces it, it's, you know, it, it undoes the whole problem. 
And uh, I, I always loved that. That was a very profound moment in that story. And I think that fits in the Campbellian ideas of, of yeah. um, shadow of, of the, uh, the hero's journey, but um, also of, of uh, Jungian's shadow theory uh, work, his, his shadow theory, his shadow work um, fits mm-hmm. that as well too. So yeah, I think if I think about those two um, scholars, historians, philosophers, very much um, psychologists, I guess with Jung, but um, uh, those two concepts are really important for me, the, the Jungian shadow theory mm-hmm. and uh, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. Yeah. Big, big, important things for me in terms of figuring out my content on the canvas, but then also you feel it in yourself too. Why am I doing this? You know, and you feel you're, you feel like you're doing that work and that you're on that journey, I think. Yeah. 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 And I love that book, by the way. I, I also read it. I think about it, you know, every so often, I just remember this wizard who has amazing power, creates this shadow version of himself, runs away for years and years. And then, oh, you know what? I should just face it. And then everything's okay. Yeah. There it is. <laughs> think about yeah. that. Yeah, I think yeah, about that a lot. It's um, so important. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and then to nerd out just a little bit, there is actually another <laughs> movie that also talks about, or you know, there is that self identification of you know the the protagonist and the real enemy, which is obviously himself, or seeing the truth behind who they really are. Um, and that is actually in in the Never Ending Story. I don't know if you mm. watched it, where oh, yeah. <laughs> Atreyu he's going through. Um, the snow and the ice and he sees a mirror and he mm-hmm. actually sees the truth in the mirror which is that he is actually a character in a book <laughs> but it doesn't really hit him um which that immediately when you said the minotaur being you know the main character i just imagine that scene because it stuck with me because that's one of the movies that, is, that really stuck with me oh yeah i know it very too well and it um it uh that's a, yeah that's a pivotal iconic moment i think in in any kind of hero's journey uh, tradition, mm-hmm. and uh, and then of course he, you know, there's the he confronts the the monster that's been chasing him, the the wolf, the mm-hmm. and um, and uh, you know, and sort of willing to um, in the act of slaying the wolf, he's willing to die himself too, you know, and sort of become <laughs> one with his enemies. Like you know, he says, "I'd rather die fighting," and and they kind of embrace each other, mm-hmm. and uh, there's this willingness to just become one with your shadow even if it destroys you in that in that sense um in that example mm-hmm. but um you know he survives of course and he comes out yeah. he comes out uh you know renewed after that so yeah. um yeah i think the shadow uh, the shadow work um for the artist and, and i think for me for my own particular um experience with 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 jung's shadow work is that uh, it's, it's been an interesting experience because when I started out, uh, leaving art school and figuring out what my paintings were going to be like and, and, um, what subject matter and how was I going to deal with form and light? Um, I was really, um, I was very much driven by Caravaggio's use of light and shadow and uh, you know, which is a, which comes from a Renaissance Baroque um, uh, treatment of light and shadow, which is really quite simple. That light is divine, and shadow is just a void, you know. Or we could you can say it's evil, or it's the lack of God, or uh, it's the dark side of of human existence. 
And so a lot of my paintings, and even still to this day, I think um, I try to I, I try to work with that Caravaggio understanding of light and shadow, where everything good and interesting is in the light, the colors in the lights, the detail, the form, um, uh, the thicker, more robust paint is in the light, and then the shadows are all the opposite. They're the void, they're earth tone. You know, so lacking in color, they're transparent, sort of thinner areas of the painting. Um, I, I mean, I love that. But then, more recently, as, as I, you know, as I thought more about what Jung has to say about the shadow and what does that mean for artists, um, and I mean, the gist of Jung's shadow principle is that the more we look into our shadows, uh, we find really important lessons for our ourselves. You know, to learn about ourselves. And I thought, what, what does that mean about me as a painter if I'm only looking at what's in the light? And um, it's, you know, it's changing the way that I paint now, where I still come at it from this very, very historical solution that light is the brilliant divine thing and shadow is this absence. But I find that it, the young shadow theory is causing me to embrace painting in different ways that there is a lot to be shown in the shadow and that we need to look into it and delve into it and does that mean that i need to depict it more in the, in the painting does that mean that i need to start thinking about different systems of light uh because i've always worked with the caravaggio's light where it's a super strong concentrated narrow beam of light whether that's from a portal in the window or if it's you know it's a, a light bulb um, I've always created that kind of singular light source light stark, you know, like Caravaggio's paintings look like we're just seeing something happening that's lit up by a flash of lightning in the black space, you know, and that's, and that's exciting. But, um, I'm starting to think more and more as a painter these days that I want to investigate other lighting systems, you know, like I, I have a painting that's actually behind me on the, on the easel, but, um, the figures are well there's one figure who's brightly illuminated and there's other figures that are in the shadows like they're literally inside the shadows and i've never i've never painted that before uh i've never fully resolved form in a painting that's inside of the shadow and i think that i'm doing that now because um you know the more i think about jung's shadow theory I, the more i feel like that is important to, to work with and I think this also spills forward into our content that we create and the content that we choose for ourselves, because it, it totally ties in to Jung's shadow theory, where if we say, this is what I paint, like I paint this, this, and this, these are my stories. Um, and then someone, someone, say, someone might say to you, well, why don't you paint this and this? And you'd say, oh, I don't, I don't do that. Well, right there, when you say, I don't do that, you just put that in the bag Jung, Jung has you know, an analogy of the bag, you know, or at least a lot of Jungian psychologists have the, the, the metaphor of the bag to explain his shadow concept. You know, we've got this sack, this bag with us. And from the time we're five, we start putting things in the sack, you know, like I'm not supposed to hit my brother. Okay, I'll put that in the sack. Uh, I'm not supposed to hoard the toys to myself. Okay, I'll put that in the sack. But then later on, things like, you know, it might be in gra grade school, we might think, well, I don't wear those kind of sneakers. I wear these kind of sneakers. So that goes in the sack. 
you know? And um, like oh, later in college, like, oh, I don't cut my hair like that. You know, I cut my hair like this because I have this style. I don't have that style. So all that thing or that style that I don't have that goes in the sack. And all those things are now in your shadow and they're going to haunt you the rest of your life. And um, so if I go around saying, oh, I paint these kinds of subject matters, I don't paint those ones over there. That's not me. Well, now that's in my shadow. And, and um, I, you know, it's a problem. It's it's something that we have to constantly look at. And, um, you know, if, if we go around painting in a certain way, the things that we're not painting, we have to not, we have to not ignore those things. So I find that Jung's shadow theory has affected me both in literal ways in terms of thinking about light and shadow as a painter, but also in terms of how I think about content um, and what, you know, what the content is I choose for myself. I'm constantly questioning now, am I, is this something that I'm, that I'm supposed to be doing because it's, you know, it's out here in my psyche, you know, in my sub, in my conscious psyche, or what about all the stuff that's in my subconscious that I've subverted that that's where, that's really where the haunting, uh, fermented, rich feelings actually are. And mm -hmm. I don't want to, I don't want to lose touch with that because that's where the gold is, as they say in Jungian traditions. I mean, it's really gold if you can pull what's out of the shadow in a healthy way, of course, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, like when we're, you know, the first lesson we learn when we're three and five is don't hit your sibling, you know, don't hit your brother or your sister. Well, that's good. I mean, you know, that yeah. should be in the sack and we should stay there. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of stuff later. Like I said, you know, I don't cut my hair like this, or I don't wear that kind of shirt. Some of that stuff is, you know, if, if we stick with it, um, we're not really discovering who our true selves are. And then it comes out inadvertently later. You know, it comes out and in, in, it's going to emerge. You know, it'll emerge in, you know, who you pick as your friends and who you pick as your spouse and so mm -hmm. forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway, oh. that goes that goes down a rabbit hole tunnel. <laughs> of it, yeah, it traditions. does, but it's... It's a great rabbit hole, though, and I've gone down it uh, quite often because, you know, yeah, yeah. it's it's like you're saying, right? It's like, instead of being like, I don't do that, it's like, why? Why don't I do that? Why right. don't I explore this thing that creates this reaction in me? It's like, why do I even... Because, you know, there's like half of the stuff that's happening around you, half of the things that you see, it's like, I don't care. But what about those things that have mm -hmm. that little trigger? whether it's a good one yeah. or a bad one, right? That, right. you know, there's like, uh, there's triggers. And and I read somewhere online that people are calling like the good ones glimmers, where it's like, ah, oh, I really love how mm. this painting is speaking to me. Or I really love mm. how how the colors are, are moving in this image, right? That's mm -hmm. like a glimmer. That's like, okay, that's something to also explore that, you know, yeah. could have been in the shadows as well. Um, yeah. And the other great point that you make is how the shadow actually has gifts. And we were talking about this oh, before yeah. we we went on on the podcast. How the shadow has these gifts, um, yeah, that help you. It's almost like a breadcrumb trail, um, mm -hmm. which when you are vulnerable to yourself, because obviously you know it's hard to do that with strangers. But when you are yeah. vulnerable with yourself and you face yourself in that you know I am my own enemy type of way, um, it mm -hmm. is. It really is. It can be a place full of compassion that leads you to an even deeper level of understanding of yourself and therefore mm -hmm. a better understanding of why you even do what you do as an artist, right. which whew, <laughs> yeah, I think we could even do another episode just 
talking about this subject because yeah. it is oh it's so fundamental to the creative practice um yeah. but uh i did want to ask you since we're talking mm. about narrative and jung and and um the hero's journey i wanted to ask you how you approach storytelling in your art and if there are any recurring mythological elements that you frequently explore yeah um that's a great question i i think um for me because i love the narrative in uh in 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 uh, traditional painting realism representational painting whatever you want to call it um that's always been my biggest inspiration you know even just from looking at storybooks and illustrations as a child and later um reading all of the classics that were illustrated by nc wyatt um uh so i have a strong love for the narrative but um i think traditional illustrators like uh nc wyatt like norman rockwell howard Pyle, um who i who i regard as masters you know um they I think the role of the illustrator is to give the story in a more uh, straightforward way, but they don't always do it that way. I mean, sometimes they just depict the, they illustrate the story being told, you know, because that's their role. They're an illustrator, their image accompanies a novel or a story of some kind. Um, I like it for me. I like it when there's a, a piece of the narrative is there, but there's also, um a mystery uh, uh waiting to be investigated or solved by the viewer uh, or maybe it's never solved maybe they maybe it leaves them with the feeling of mystery i think that's important um to leave the viewer with with either a, a mild or strong dose of mystery to the work even if the painter has a specific intention in mind in what they're doing and what they're what narrative they're telling um uh, that's where my interest in narrative artwork falls. I think I, I think a lot about dreams and how dreams are narratives of types. But um, dreams are fascinating narratives because they can they can take you know a sudden left turn or they can have multiple outcomes or the narrative can change but and yet still feel cohesive with its in initial story. I mean you know dreams are can be wild and crazy and. And uh, a lot of people discount them, you know, but I think a lot of artists look at their dreams very seriously. Um, so for me, when I make narrative paintings, I think about dreams a lot because something that I think is, is true, uh, something I feel is true about dreams is that it makes sense that this is true to me because it's, it's happening in your mind, happening in your brain when you have a dream. Everything that happens in that dream, everybody that you encounter and interact with is really just you wearing, you know, a disguise or a mask or a different outfit or cloaked in, you know, the skins of another animal or a monster. Um, and so when we make a painting, a multiple figure narrative painting, uh, we're really tapping into that flavor of a dream where we're playing all these roles, you know, and we're looking at all these different aspects of our own persona and then we're asking our viewer to do the same of course because i don't think narrative painting is about the painter themselves it shouldn't be i don't think narrative painting you know i think we don't want to create the impression that an artist is really just narcissistic and completely in, engaged in their own neuroses you know 
I think it's important for an artist to to uh, work with all of these themes and traditions, the 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 Jungian one, the Campbellian one, um, but to realize that there is a duty when making narrative art to always pull the audience in to make this make it powerful for them, you know, to say, well, let's say this painting embraces or grapples with um, issues of abandonment or, or rejection in, in some way, uh, or, you know, maybe that leads into topics of isolation. Um, it's important for the artist to say, you know, even though they, they've experienced that themselves in their own life, to not make it a soap opera painting about the way, the exact way in which they've experienced it, but to really zoom out in the narrative and say, how can I deal with themes of rejection, isolation, abandonment? Uh, I'm just picking ones at random, right? Big human themes um, that will pull in the whole audience. Everyone that's going to look at this can find a way in to resonate with what's going on in the story in the painting or um, the characters and what they're doing in the painting to, to find a way to see themselves in the painting. Uh, I think for me, narrative artworks, um, really, they, they have that, um, they have that, uh, what's the word, that requirement that um, they need that, that accountability to speak to the audience, to pull in the audience. And, um, you know, we don't need to give them a fully a scripted version of what's happening in the painting. A, mis a mysterious version of what's happening is really better. You know, because it does it, it just it just tickles human intrigue more, but it also might leave um, openings or seats in the audience for the audience to feel for the individual viewer to feel like they can now inhabit the, the you know and be part of the audience, be part of the the um, or or really take part in the performance of what's happening, feel like they're in there. Uh, I I I hope. I hope and strive for those feelings in my painting. I'm not saying that I can do that or that I always do that. I think I do it sometimes when I'm lucky, uh, but I, I always think about it. And um, and that's something I want to have happen in my paintings. Yeah. 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 No, it's a great goal. And, and I like the point that you make about the viewer being, you know, the, the person who didn't make it being the, you know, the part that completes the cycle of painting. Um, because of course we, we don't, yeah, to an extent, we paint for ourselves, but that doesn't mean that what we're painting exists in a void, right? There are people out there right. who will resonate with it heavily, even if they right. weren't the ones who created it. I mean, it's the same reason we all fall in love with movies like Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, because, you know, mm -hmm. it, it touches something for yeah. some people. Uh, yeah. And Star Wars as well, for that matter. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I really wanted to know, too... Um, in your personal hero's journey, what was it like for you to go from student to full-fledged, you know, artists living from their work? What was that like? And do you have any advice for someone looking to do the same? Yeah, sure. That's a good question. And I, I, I hear it a lot, you know, because especially from um, art students move, leaving school, the big question is, how am I going to uh, all kinds of things. How am I going to support myself? 
How am I going to um, get my work out there? That's a big one. And uh, of course, what we've been talking about, you know, what what should I paint? Sometimes that is a big question for somebody. You know, they've they've acquired all this skill in their training, and then what do they paint? And mm-hmm. um, and sometimes there's not a lot of room in there for for variation to to paint and be unique, you know, and and stand out from your peers in a special way. So um, for me, I left uh, I left graduate school and I started to teach right away. And the uh, income that that brought in really bought me time in the studio to start to explore. And um, uh, not all of it is very glorious. Like I'll say my first years out of grad school, I really wanted to secure a gallery and to have a relationship with the gallery and to have the gallery uh, like me and be in support of my work. And so I found that what was sort of safe and sanctioned by a lot of galleries was to paint still life. And um, I don't think there's any shame in painting still life at all. And I, and I honestly, I love painting still life. And I did so for many years. And I think I'm really good at it. <laughs> um, I did a lot of still life when I first got out of graduate school. So this is, I'm getting into the answer here. And um, I, would, I would show those in galleries and they would sell. Um, I think that um, uh, painting still life for a gallery is a great way to really push yourself in your, your skills, your chops, your, the technical aspects of your painting. Because you can try out all kinds of subject matter. I mean, of course, you know, you start with bowls of fruit, but you might find yourself painting really challenging things, you know, like a big tangle of branches or something or a drapery that's, you know, knotted and tangled and um, convoluted with other things wrapped up in it. And you could really challenge yourself with all the different kinds of subject matter that can be painted um and and uh test yourself in that regard and of course you have a lot of time and space and privacy to do that when you paint still life you can take all the time you want to sit in front of that still life table and no one's looking over your shoulder uh there's no model waiting to take a break or you know to be paid and so forth so still life was a good friend of mine um as an early painter and I think that that ended up spilling out into painting interiors, you know, painting hallways and rooms and looking through doorways into kitchens with beautiful light and space. And there's a wonderful tradition of interiors where there are no figures, and yet they're full of mood and feeling, and they really test the painter's ability to paint light and space and perspective and atmosphere. Um, I did a lot of interiors, you know, and um, somewhere along the way, I think I found stability. You know, I think fairly early on, I found stability in a combination of teaching and painting still life. I will say that I knew that the whole time I was really um, pleasing the gallery. I showed with John Pence Gallery in San Francisco for 14 years, and John was a wonderful dealer. Um, he's still alive, but he's retired now in his 80s and a uh, wonderful support and dealer and had an incredible gallery in San Francisco full of a lot of contemporary realists that are still working. Uh, and it was a wonderful community, too. But John really wanted me to paint a lot of still life. And he would often tell 
his newer painters that were just joining the stable of artists at the gallery, he'd say, I want you to paint me a show of 30 still lifes. And they can be small, but I want I want them, you know, all to be very cohesive, similar lightings. I want you to frame them all the same way and we'll give you your first solo show. And I think that was a formula that worked for a lot of painters. I think they they were able to kind of enter the scene with something that seemed really well unified and coordinated in its appearance. A lot of it would sell and that would sound good to the world that this painter is selling. Um, but I, you know, pretty quickly after doing that, I felt that this is not what I dreamed for myself. You know, what did I dream about doing? And of course, you know, I looked up, I, I thought about painters that really excited me and those were Velasquez and Caravaggio and, uh, Odd Nerdrum and, uh, Mempo Bartlett and Vincent Desiderio. Um, these were painters that I saw their work that were doing large paintings with multiple figures that had a narrative of some kind. And that's what really uh, made me go through all the training and the study. And I thought that I'm going to do that one day. Um, I think it's important for an artist to, to, call, to call it when they feel like they've kind of had that transitional period out of school, um, solidified what kind of techniques they use, how they paint, what their paintings kind of look like, the palette they use. Are they direct painters? Are they indirect painters? I mean, you know, do they just do mostly a la prima? Do they like to do a lot of glazing? They have to figure that stuff out. But I think that can be done in that sort of fledgling period when you leave the nest of the art school. You know, it's and that's why still life is a great thing. Um, but there, there's an important moment to stop being the fledgling and really start to soar high. You know, like that was the goal is I wanted to soar way up there in the clouds if we're using a bird analogy, leaving the nest. Um, and that can be scary too, because you wonder, am I going to stop selling? Uh, are the galleries going to start to kind of not want to show my work because they're bigger and they don't, they might be weird. They might be scary. They might, they might embrace grotesque themes. Um, galleries start to go, ah, about that, you know, that, that's a challenge that the artists can face as they start to leave that fledgling stage of being an artist, a new artist, and start to move into their more mid-career, maybe. Um, they might find that if they're being true to themselves in the artwork they want to make, that really what inspired them in the first place, they might also find it's not easy to sell or to show. And there's a trade-off there. And and hopefully you, you've got the stability financially that maybe you can afford not to sell a little bit while your work goes through this, this new, uh, out of coming out of a cocoon phase where you're really going to be the more mature painter that you will become. And um, there's big trade-offs because while you're, you're really nurturing your dream and your vision, and you're following that passion that you always saw for yourself. You might also be suffering in other ways. You know, all the things I mentioned, not selling um, galleries, maybe treating you with a little bit of an aversion because your work is big and takes up a lot of wall space. If you make big paintings that take up a lot of wall space, galleries, um, and I don't blame them, they're not really going to like that because they have very expensive rents to pay. You know, I, I can sympathize with a gallery in New York City or San Francisco or Los Angeles. They have to have a space in a very 
um, affluent part of town with a lot of traffic so that people will see the work. Um, they need to be available to clients that have a lot of money that are interested in collecting artwork. They have very challenging rents. You know, if, if we could see those figures, we would kind of be horrified. And then when you present them with the idea of showing a large, challenging painting of yours that has, you know, things that are not necessarily pleasant or happy to put on your wall at home that take up the entire wall of that room in the gallery, they're going to sort of um, be nervous because there goes their rent for the month. You know, whereas if you give them 30 still lives, they're pretty happy because even if they sell 10 of those, then they're okay. They're they're in good shape. Yeah. Um, so th that's the, that's the, um, that is some tricky territory for the fledgling artist becoming the mature painter to have to navigate. And uh, that's kind of, um, maybe that's where I find myself nowadays. You know, it's, um, it's embracing the work that I really wanted to do and doing it and feeling good about that. But, um, understanding that it's going to be harder to show my work because of its size. These paintings behind me are are much more moderately sized. They're like around forty inches square ish, you know, or in that than that in that size range. But um, you know, I just completed a painting that's nine feet tall by seven feet wide, and that's that's hard to exhibit, you know, and and it's also hard to find a home for it. Even if um, I found the past couple paintings I've done that have been that scale, a lot of people do want them. But the reality is they can't fit them in their houses, apartments, or even if they can, this has been a real a real heartbreaker, even if they can fit them in their apartments. Um, if let's say you have an affluent collector in New York City who wants to own your large painting and they can fit it in their apartment, they live in, you know, an older pre-war Upper East Side apartment in Manhattan, and there actually is no freight elevator. Uh, and the stairwells up into the building are tiny, you know, and they can barely fit their couches up into <laughs> their buildings. And um, they realized that after taking some measurements, this has happened to myself and a couple of my colleagues, after taking some measurements, they realized the painting won't fit up the stairwell and there is no elevator to fit it in and they just can't have the purchase. So um, that's a challenge. You know, we want to make these big, exciting paintings that we see on the walls in the Met, in the Prado. We want to do that work. Yeah. But it doesn't always fit. <laughs> no. Very simply fit. It doesn't fit. A very close friend of mine and a painter I admire just did a really large painting in New York and um and she had a buyer for it. And the buyer um really found out that it was, you know, it was an inch or two inches too wide to fit between the windows in the apartment. And so they declined the sale. So um, you know, this is something. I think for us to think about is we want to do these big, exciting paintings, a lot of us, but we also need to like figure out what, how big do I, can I go? How big can I go? And it'll still fit into an apartment or a house or up a stairwell or up a, an elevator that's maybe not a freight elevator. You know, we, we kind of have to think about some of those questions. And they're not always fun. I mean, when we look at Odd Nurgem's paintings, he doesn't worry about that. I mean, he paints ginormous paintings and, you yes. know, and he figures it out later. Uh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> in the end, he doesn't really do it for anyone else, but, you know, obviously himself, which is, you know, first and foremost. Um, and yeah. he does 
have collectors. I mean, there is, I forget what it's, maybe it's called the Seven Bridges uh, up in yes. like upstate New York. They're in, uh, they're in Connecticut, yeah. Oh, Connecticut. There you go. Yeah. It's like yeah. way like above. I, I remember I really wanted to visit because, you know, it's these huge Aldenardrum paintings and they're all just hanging in yeah. one place. It's like the only other place yeah. you'll ever see that is at Aldenardrum's studio. Um, so it, it's, if anyone's out there, I definitely recommend checking it out. Um, but yeah. I agree. Yeah. And you know what? But like, what if you can like unstretch the painting and then restretch it yeah. in that person's yeah. house? <laughs> yeah. I think that's something that, that is a very good point. And I think painters need to be prepared to do that. Um, that offering to unstretch and restretch. Um, I think I haven't done that enough. And I think I have a real aversion to restretching paintings. Um, and I, I should really just get over it, you know, and I've, uh, I've a lot of my heroes, you know, I, I think everyone says it's not something you really want to do, but you do it if you have to is unstretch a painting, roll it and restretch it on location, whether it's because yeah. of shipping logistics or, uh, or just fitting it into a person's uh, apartment. Yes. Um, I think painters should be prepared to stretch and unstretch and restretch paintings to learn how to do that well mm -hmm. uh in a way that doesn't damage the painting it's it's tricky i mean i think to stretch a paint restretch a painting that's been painted and unstretched to do it well that doesn't damage the painting i mean you need a big space to do it you need, yeah. you need a huge warehouse with lots of room around you you can't be in a confined room mm -hmm. you need a lot of table space to get that painting elevated um that painting that table needs to be you know a really smooth clean table without any you know no nail sticking out of it or anything like that um so you do need some resources to restretch and do it well you know it's mm -hmm. it's not always so straightforward and then you know restretching it inside of an apartment and to do it well where the canvas is really taut and tight and not yeah. you know misaligned with its stretcher bars that's um that really i have nightmares about that you know i really do <laughs> i really don't want to do that but i suppose mm -hmm. if it comes down to finding a home for the painting, then it has to be done. But I also, yep. I have nightmares about somebody paying a large amount of money for a, you know, a major painting that you've done and then not being able to restretch it well and giving them a compromised product. It creates a lot of anxiety in me as a painter. Oh, no, I totally get so, that. And, and you make some very good points. Yeah. Um, I just thought yeah. like, you know, maybe if it's like slightly too big for a stairwell and maybe it can be restretched in yes. a good enough area but yeah 50 yeah. 50 chance <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i agree with that 50 50 yeah. yeah yeah i just feel bad for the collector because if they really you know they really wanted it and especially if it's a big painting that they had been considering for a while it's like oh yeah. to not be able it's to go tragedy. through it it's painful it's a tragedy for everybody yeah yeah, yeah. at bold brush we inspire artists to inspire the world because creating art creates magic and the world is currently in desperate need of magic. Boldbrush provides artists with free art marketing, creativity, and business ideas and information. This show is an example. We also offer written resources, articles, and a free monthly art contest open to all visual artists. We believe that fortune favors the bold brush. And if you believe that too, sign up completely free at boldbrushshow.com. That's B-O-L-D-B-R-U-S-H show.com. The Bold Brush Show is sponsored by Basso. 
Now more than ever, it's crucial to have a website when you're an artist, especially if you want to be a professional in your career. Thankfully, with our special link, faso.com forward slash podcast, you can make that come true and also get over 50% off your first year on your artist website. Yes, that's basically the price of 12 lattes in one year, which I think is a really great deal considering that you get sleek and beautiful website templates that are also mobile-friendly, e-commerce, print-on-demand in certain countries, as well as access to our marketing center that has our brand new art marketing calendar. And the art marketing calendar is something that you won't get with our competitor. The art marketing calendar gives you day-by-day, step-by-step guides on what you should be doing today, right now, in order to get your artwork out there and seen by the right eyes so that you can make more sales this year. So if you want to change your life and actually meet your sales goal this year, then start now by going to our special link, faso.com forward slash podcast. That's F-A-S-O dot com forward slash podcast. Um, yeah. But on, on a brighter note, um, I did want to ask you about the exhibition yeah. that you helped curate, uh, Big yeah. Stories. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Well, I'm very proud about that. Um, uh, big Stories is, uh, it's a big dream come true, really. It, it's an exhibition of, um, a multi-painter uh, exhibition of 18 different painters that I helped co-curate w- alongside uh, my colleagues and friends, uh, Carl Dobsky, um, who's a wonderfully impressive painter. And uh, Carl and I went to um, grad school together in New York. And, uh, and we also worked with um, Bo Bartlett, was a, is a co-curator as well. And um, uh, Big Stories started out uh, actually seven, is it six or seven years back? And and I found emails going all the way back to uh, 2017, in which Carl and I discussed um, the challenges of making big multi-figure narrative paintings and where, where do we exhibit them? And wouldn't it be nice if there was a show or an, an exhibition that celebrated this kind of work where we could bring the whole community together of artists that are working in this tradition and everyone gets to show together in a big show. And it sounded like a fantasy at first. Um, pretty quickly, we we felt that we should approach Bo Bartlett because he was a mutual hero of, of both mine and Carl's. And of course, Bo, um, Bo had... Uh, uh, a, a major tradition in his own work of working in this uh, in this this tradition this this uh, this historical practice of large multi-figure paintings. Um, he also had a center in Columbus, Georgia, where he grew up, called the Bo Bartlett Center, which was a, a really um, top-notch exhibition space, a huge space um, for exhibiting painting shows. Um, and so we sought out Bo for his guidance on curating the show because we have never done it before. And, um, you know, Bo is 20 years our senior and he's been a very successful painter. And, of course, the Bo Bartlett Center, we thought, would be um, supportive to um, staging this exhibition. So Bo was immediately very supportive and interested in joining us as a curator uh, and interested in staging the exhibition at the Bo Bartlett Center. Um, and for the next a couple of years, I mean, this started, this was back in 2017 and 2018 when Bo joined us as a curator. Uh, for the next several years, we talked about artists that uh, we would like to have in the show and what paintings we would like to have in the show by them. Uh, and it took a lot of work to 
um, not only approach the painters and get them to commit to being in the show. Uh, in many cases, um, several of the artists wanted to make new paintings for the show. And so they needed a lot of time to make a large, impressive work that was exhibition worthy. You know, they needed a big heads up, up to do that. Um, and, uh, and, and just a lot of time in dealing with the logistics of loaning paintings that were either owned by a collection like the Seven Bridges Foundation that you mentioned. Uh, or the Stephen Bennett collection, um, we you know a lot of negotiating with them on what what paintings would be loaned and what the agreement was. Uh, so um, we learned that curating is uh, it's a lot of logistical work, you know, in mm -hmm. in working with independent um, owners of paintings uh, and collections and museums. Uh, one case we loaned, um, we owned a painting by Amy Sherald from the Baltimore Museum of Art. Uh, we owned several, we loaned several paintings from the uh, Seven Bridges Foundation, and I mentioned the Stephen Bennett collection. Um, we owned, we excuse me, we loaned paintings from uh, Black Art in America, which is a foundation that supports uh, Black painters, uh, Black artists in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, so. It was a lot of logistical work. Fortunately, we had the support of the staff from the Bo Bartlett Center, including the director at the Bo Bartlett Center, Michael McFalls, and his staff. They were incredibly instrumental in helping us make big stories a reality. So after six years of planning and uh, logistical work and loan forms and um, uh, corresponding with artists, uh, we finally were able to put together this this world class exhibition, um, uh, and it opened up at the Bo Bartlett Center in early October, and it's still up now. Uh, this is uh, we're in fall twenty twenty three as we're talking, and so the show is still up there now, and it's going to run through December sixteenth of twenty twenty three, and then we're all very excited because it's going to travel. The show will travel to the New York Academy of Art. Uh, and will be exhibited there um, from January 26th through March 3rd, 2024. So the opening reception is is going to be January uh, 26th, which is a Friday uh, at the New York Academy of Art in Manhattan. So uh, all the work is getting ready to, uh, soon. We've got a couple more weeks here, uh, but it's getting ready to travel. And um, the exhibit will open up in New York and we'll all go out for it. There's going to be an artist panel discussion. Um, we've talked about Odd Nerdrum a couple of times in our conversation here. He has, uh, we have one of his paintings in the show. Uh, we tried to fill up the show with a lot of our, our heroes, Odd being one of them, uh, Bo Bartlett and Vincent Desiderio being others. Um, Margaret Boland uh, is a hero and she has a painting in the show. Uh, and a lot of contemporary heroes too, like Zoe Frank, and Michelle Dahl and um, Aaliyah Chapin. Um, so it was a lot of fantastic realists, both um, uh, from the older generation, the mid generation, the newer generation. Uh, it's very exciting to get all of us together and um, to promote work of this nature again, to say, hey, this is something that should be done. And it's, it's, uh, it's an exciting way to be an artist, to make paintings in this tradition. And we should, uh, you know, if it's something that calls to you as an artist, which I think if you're 
a figurative realist, it probably does because you've looked at a lot of painters and been inspired by a lot of painters who paint in that tradition and from Rembrandt to Caravaggio to Velasquez to Rubens. These are all probably painters that you've looked at and admired. And they work in these big, large scale traditions with lots of figures and a narrative going on. Um, it probably is something that calls to you if you're if you find yourself in that category and it's something that you should strive for. And it's not always easy. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of constraints, like finding a studio space to do that in, um, finding a place that will exhibit the work. Um, but it should be done nonetheless, I think. I agree completely. Also, because yeah. I'm I'm very biased towards uh, <laughs> making big paintings, uh, because I, that's also my goal. Um, yeah. But yeah, that is so cool. I wish I could go. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, I can't Aww. really afford to do that at the moment. Um, but uh, hopefully, eventually in the future, I can you know go out there and see some of the more, I guess, contemporary uh, narrative paintings that are out there in the realism world. Um, because it's really awesome to see how you know, like in the eighties, right? Realism was considered dead, dead and gone. Yeah buried right you know right um so it's it's so amazing to now be in a time where it's back it was never gone yes. you know all of these incredible people who you know lived through the 20th century who were able to you know hold on so tight to this information yeah. on you know painting in the traditional sense because it was oh my god i've heard so many horror stories about how we have lost certain information right but what we were yes, able yeah. to hold on to now it's coming back and it's so inspiring. Right. So it I'm is. happy that, really... you know, you're, you decided to make this exhibition happen. Cause that's, Thank you. Oh, it's such a testament yeah. to, to this rebirth. Yeah. It's, it's been, it's been a dream come true to have this show become a reality and, and also, you know, to get to be a part of it. I mean, I have a painting in the show. Um, Carl Dobsky has a painting in the show. And of course, Bo Bartlett has a painting in the show with the three curators. We, you know, we want to be a part of it too. So we carried it ourselves in to get to be in that company um, like you said, it, it realism, traditional figuration, you know, using the figure in a classical manner, as as you said, you know, it really dwindled down to just a, a handful of of practitioners through those mid-century years, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s. There were barely any um still mm -hmm. doing it. And then certainly they were they were pushed way into the shadows and they weren't given any attention by um, you know, by our critics and so forth. So, but they they maintain the practice, and um, and it's you know it's this kind of slowly came back up out of the subconsciousness of the collective subconsciousness of of art. You know, it it bubbled it's bubbled its way back to the surface. Um, and you know that's why I, I you know I named Bo Bartlett and Vincent Desiderio. They're they're they were two painters that really in the eighties they suddenly had a solo show or it was a you know group show together with some other painters that um made, it really caught attention you know in in the early eighties that oh people are doing this again they weren't the ones that you know necessarily the ones that carried it through other painters like Sidney Goodman uh, who taught at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts was one. Ben Kamihura, uh, also taught at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. I mean, they were doing realism, traditional figuration through the 60s and 70s. Um, 
and uh, and just keeping that thread alive. And others that ended up becoming more connected with the Atelier movement, like Ted Seth Jacobs and Michael Aviano, they were doing the work at that time. And, you know, they were these little seeds that then, you know, took on a handful of students. And those students then have blossomed into these ateliers that are all over the world now. Mm -hmm. And uh, using traditional uh, classical methods of drawing and painting and suddenly becoming available for artists everywhere. Because, you know, what was never lost was an interest in seeing artwork mm -hmm. of that of that nature. I mean, you would go to the museums and it wouldn't and the galleries and it wouldn't really be available. And, you know, the cool people, the hip people, that was they were fine with it. But but the general world was going around saying, why don't people paint like the old masters anymore? I, and when I go to the museum, that's what I want to see. And and so they would go to the museum and they, and they would, you know, they would be fulfilled uh, in that in that way, but they were wondering. You know, the world was wondering what happened to the realists, and why doesn't anybody work in, in that manner anymore? And um, you know, it's it's suddenly your generation, especially. Uh, it's it's really surprising how uh, technically skilled. I think thanks to the to the availability of atelierism, um, incredibly skilled and just impressive. Uh, you you've all become you know and i and i said earlier when we were just warming up talking before the interview that um that i think it's important for artists of my generation and older to keep our eyes on you guys because um it, you know we we don't want to fall out of touch and uh we don't want to um to uh to lose the the connection to the new and what's happening now and staying relevant and um making sure that our work uh is is connected to it in some way i think it's important that we don't just closet ourselves and say you know i'm only going to think about what my teachers did and what they told me that's important too but also to look look at the younger generations to see what's happening and um and and keep a connection with it keep our eye on it you know and, and learn from it i learn a lot from it I think thanks to social media, I'm able to see um, what a lot of new fledgling realists are doing. And uh, it pushes me. You know, I see really good things, impressive things, um, things that, um, you know, make me realize I still have to keep pushing myself. And that's exciting. You know, it, it keeps you energized and alive and um, still trying to, to pull more out of yourself to be better, to strive harder. Um, that's what the younger generation can provide um, for artists that are in their mid-career, like myself. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, thanks thanks to you guys and all that you're doing and, and how you're keeping us inspired and motivated. Yeah, and thanks to you guys, too, for, you know, holding the torch and, and you know, continuing that legacy of narrative multifigural painting. Because, again, like I, when I was in high school, I thought it was, no one does that. I want to do that, do that, but no one does that until I found out that ateliers existed um, right. by chance. Because um, I, I met someone who happened to study in my high school, and uh, he had studied in an atelier. And I was like, "Hold on, mm -hmm. wait, what?" Like mm -hmm. he had already graduated and stuff, and I was just a kid. So uh, yeah. when I was like, "Wait a minute, people still paint like that? You're kidding!" Right. Like I was right. so mind blown and excited because I was taking art history, and I was just 
like I want to paint like Rubens. I want to paint like all of these, you know, old dead dudes that like, why don't we do that anymore? You know? Um, so it's good to know that there good are question. living people who do it. Um, yeah. So it's, it, it really is inspiring also for my generation. So it's a and back for, and forth and thing. For, yeah, exactly. But, and for women too, because, you know, when you look at art history, it's mostly loaded full of, like you said, you know, dead white dudes. dudes. <laughs> and um, and there are some women like Artemisia Gentileschi and <laughs> and uh, Vigi Lebrun and you know it gets better as you go into the 19th century like Rosa Bonheur and oh, um, Cecilia Bow and and Mary Cassatt is like you know but when you go back into the Renaissance and the Baroque not so much I mean we kind of only have like Artemisia mm-hmm. um, but I think that some of the most impressive realists now are women and um, you know some, some of my favorite realists like uh mamaya gurpide and colleen barry um i mean you know blow me away and i i constantly look at their work and find inspiration in it um so that's exciting too to to bring women into the into the into the whole tradition of it and not just like in a not just like in a token way like oh we got to have the women it's like no you guys are really becoming the heavy hitters you know, and I really mean that. And uh, and so that's really important because it, it, it's much better. It's everything's much better uh, when yeah. it's balanced with, with all of us. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Also, because, you know, there's like the, the rite of passage that women go through that men don't and vice versa. You know, we have these differences in vision and in, in experience in life that, like you said, it completes also the narrative of you know people as people as humanity you know so it's uh it's also good to see that that's happening um yeah more more female role models out there which is also amazing so good Um, yeah i love it i love it yeah uh and then i did want to ask you because uh of course on this podcast we do touch upon marketing and uh something that i find fascinating is that not a lot of people or yeah, I guess not a lot of people really realize that a lot of marketing is actually narrative. Um, you know, when you're selling something, you're not just selling the thing, you're selling a story, you're selling like the entire, you know, experience of whatever it is that you're selling, right? In this case, painting. Um, how do you use narrative when it comes to marketing your work? Hmm, that's that's an interesting question. I haven't thought about that before. Um I think that uh, I try to I try to identify myself as a narrative art artist, as a narrative painter, um, and um, the works, the descriptions of the shows, and the descriptions of the works within the shows uh, tend to discuss that as um, really tying into a tradition, you know, tying into a history of this practice. And uh, you know, identifying oneself, myself as a as a as a you know classical narrative figurative artist that uh, is using painting techniques that come from the traditions of uh, you know certain figureheads in art history like Caravaggio, like Rembrandt, and so forth. Um, I think you know just in descriptions of shows. I think that it would it would be limited to that in uh, you know how I describe the paintings in the show. Um, Marketing the work, I think, has changed a lot since the advent of social media. I'm sure we all agree it's been a wonderful thing for artists um, to have social media, to be able to take 
something that's a, just a sketch or an idea. And, you know, in a few moments, a little scribble or an oil sketch or a half-finished drawing or a painting that's just the underpainting, you know, anything can be shared with the world in just a matter of seconds. And the fulfillment, the satisfaction that we get from that, I think is is so major because I remember years where um, we couldn't market ourselves that way, you know, to say, this is what I'm doing. I'm an artist who's working right now in this moment on my easel. This is what it looks like. Here I am mm -hmm. painting or this is what I'm struggling with. And you just share that with the world. Um, before the advent of social media, artists felt, I think, very lonely and isolated. And often there was this metaphor of the artist chained to their easel that was shared around a lot. You know, I'd, I'd hear p painters, realists especially, say they felt chained to the easel in a lonely windowless room somewhere, you know, because they couldn't afford to have a studio. So they'd be in their basement and just painting a still life and the hours and hours that went into it. And you would sit there and paint trying to finish this painting because you knew that that would be where you'd get to actually see the world again is putting the painting out there in a gallery or in a show. And so you were kind of waiting for that moment to get the fulfillment, the reward of your craft, to get to share what you've done with the world. You know, and, and it was very frustrating to say, well, this painting's not going to be done for months. No one's going to know about it unless they happen to visit my studio. And uh, and even even after it's finished, it'll be months before it's exhibited. And uh, you really had to wait for the gallery to market it. Well, now you can market it yourself because we all have Instagram accounts and and, um, you know, and other social media as well. Uh, instantaneously, you get to share the making of it, the, you know, the stages of it and the unveiling of it when it's done. And. Um, I think that I think the artists don't feel so lonely anymore in their marketing. They also feel, don't feel beholden to a gallery uh, to 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 manage the marketing or even the necessity to have a really strong website. I mean, that's that's imperative. I think to to have a strong website, mm -hmm. but the social media, the access to social media changes the marketing quite a bit because you can make any post, you can turn any post into, it could just be about sharing the work, but could it could also be that this is what I do in the workshop that I'm teaching this summer. Or it could be that, you know, I'm selling, I'm having a studio sale this summer of all the drawings that I've been doing as studies for my next big painting. Here they are. And, you know, I'm going to begin selling them next week. And so it's instantaneous marketing that I think it puts a lot of power back in the hands of the artist. And it's, it's that instantaneousness of it feels very powerful that I can just be drawing on the easel or painting on the wall over here and decide, oh, I better market uh, my show coming up next month. And I don't have to wait for the gallery to do it. I can do it myself. Um, that's that's a, been a wonderful thing. On, on the downside of that, um, I often worry that we've put so much power into the hands of social media. Like one day I realized that if something went wrong with my social media, like if a hacker got a hold of my social media account and disabled it or made it so that, uh, because I've heard a lot of, this has happened to a lot of painters that I know, a mm -hmm. hacker has gained access to their social media account and basically destroyed it and they had to start over. Well, I mean, we all know that building the following 
on Instagram is, I mean, that is a mountain to climb. And, uh, it, you know, it takes a lot of work and a lot of time. And if suddenly you were to just lose access to that, um, apropos of your question about marketing, I feel like suddenly your ability to self-market is completely cut off. Um, and that worries me, you know, so I do as much as I can to bolster the security of, of my social media accounts, because I, I mean, I can't afford to have it lost or corrupted in any way. I need to constantly have control over it. And I use it all the time, not only to market my work for my exhibitions, uh, either solo exhibitions or the exhibitions that I'm, you know, that I've curated, um, but also to market uh, workshops and classes that I'm teaching. So it's so important. So I see, you know, I see it, um, you know, I know that's, that's, it's less probable. It's less likely that you're, that you'll lose your Instagram account to a hacker, but it is possible and it does happen occasionally. So I think yeah. it is a concern that we need to think about. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's happened to a few of my friends as well. Um, mm -hmm. And it's always a challenge for them to get it back. If, if they even get it back, you know, because that's the back. other part. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they, I've seen people start over. To. Yeah, that's good. I, I yeah. do have, yeah, like at least two of the people I know who who have their account hacked, they were able to somehow get it back. Um, but this is why two factor authorization is so important, and yes. you know, all of yeah. these things. Uh, don't click any links that anyone sends you. Um, no. Don't trust that ever. Yeah. Uh, it's usually probably like just a way to steal your data. Yeah, um, right. So guys, yeah. don't 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 tap any links, please. Don't tap uh, anything from strange yeah. people. <laughs> don't don't even talk to people sending you weird like requests about. NFTs. I don't know. <laughs> NFTs. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, yeah, I get, they constantly have to delete those. Oh yeah. yeah. I get those too. Um, but yes, this is very important. Um, but speaking of challenges, you know, what, what challenges have you faced, you know, when it comes to the business side of, you know, selling your work and, and all of that, um, business yeah. aspect, um, and how have you overcome those challenges? Great question. Um, I, I noticed, uh, when I was even when I was an art student, as I'm sure many of us noticed, that um, if you you know take a trip to Chelsea, Manhattan, the Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan, where all the world's top galleries are, so it's the heart of the art market. You'll notice very quickly, um, you know, the style and the trends of the work that is largely promoted and shown and reviewed uh, in the art market today, and. You know, it, there's a very narrow spot for traditional classical painters, figurative painters that work in more traditional themes, narrative themes. There's a very narrow slot, a uh, number of seats available at the table for artists working in that manner. And I noticed that very early on as a young person that most of the artwork that was being favored by the art world was really conceptual artwork, you know, artwork that falls in the categories of um, installations, assemblages, uh, found objects, performance art, um, you know, um, multimedia artworks that involve installations and videos and performance. Um, very avant-garde modes of making art are really what's heavily, um, you know, it's very disproportionate, the amount that that's promoted and the amount that you actually see uh, the type of artwork that that we want to do. Um, so there's a very 
few number of seats at the at a very huge table available for us. I I saw that as a challenge right away. Uh, as how are we going to sort of elbow our way in? Um, on, you know, frankly, it's still a big problem. It's still a major challenge for artists, especially figurative artists working in a realist tradition. It's very difficult. Um, there, there's still a lot of thinking in the art world that that is not really artwork. You know, that's not really art. That it's maybe it's more craft driven. Um, and I've seen artists try to embrace that mindset too, or to champion that mindset. I mean, certainly Odd Bergerman has done that with the kitsch philosophy that that he created um and that he embraced uh but um it's 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 a very hard challenge to work around is that in the end there's very few galleries that are available um to artists that work in that tradition so that's the challenge how do you get around it um i think that it's that's it's still a very difficult uphill climb um uh, I, I have found that even the most avant-garde galleries, um, when you look at their roster, their stable of artists, uh, they might show artwork all over the spectrum of what artists do, from performance to video to installations um, to abstract painting. But then they usually like to have one painter, two or three painters, maybe in a stable of like 50 artists that do paint representationally with figurative subject matter. So I think that's something for artists to look carefully at, is that don't assume that uh, these top-tier galleries in places like Chelsea, London, Berlin, Copenhagen, um, don't assume that they are um, uh, that they're closed off to representational figurative painters. It might be, it's very likely that they would like to have a painter of that ilk in their roster. And you might be the only one. You might not be surrounded by your colleagues and peers, but you will find yourself in a, you know, a top tier uh, cutting edge gallery that does make the rounds to these world fairs and will take your work and show it in, in Miami and New York and Chicago and Seattle and Los Angeles. And, um, and you get to be part of the, you get to be part of the art world and you might experience some exciting sales that way. Um, and I think that's an important thing for artists to look at is don't necessarily write off galleries as, oh, they're that, they just show that they're not going to want to show what I do. Mm -hmm. um, go going back to my own personal challenges as a painter, I find that the, the that my own flavor of of figurative realism, you know, the the one the flavor that comes out of my brush, my own singular brush, tends to be not classical enough for classical venues, um, uh, galleries that really promote and champion academic painting. I find that I'm on the outside of that. At the same time, my artwork is not avant-garde enough, um, you know, to be in in forums like you know Juxtapose Magazine or Hyperallergenic, where there are realist painters that are working and getting a lot of attention, and they're working in very contemporary hip modes of painting, 
And the subject matter is is very contemporary, very cutting edge. Um, I find that I'm not in that community or I'm not, my work doesn't really fit in that spectrum either. So I fall in this strange middle that um, it's it's hard to, uh, you know, to find yourself at home in any given gallery. So um, I'm fortunate that I, I have two galleries that I show with that seem to support what I do. Uh, one of those is Winfield Gallery in Carmel. And I really like the stable of artists that he has. I feel like I'm in really good company um, with artists like uh, like Camille Corey shows with him, um, Christian Fagerland, Patricia Watwood. Uh, uh, Chris Winfield has paintings by Ted Schmidt. Um, I've seen works by Alan Feltis, you know, who shows with Forum Gallery. So yeah, Mark Trujillo is another contemporary painter that I really like from Los Angeles who shows with Chris Winfield. So I like I like the community there. Um, some others I should mention at Chris Winfield are um, Warren Chang and David Laguerre is a major uh, painter whose whose works are in the De Young Museum in San Francisco. So I, I like that community. I feel I feel good about showing with Chris Winfield. I show with a gallery in New York City, Dacia Gallery on the Lower East Side, and and Dacia is really committed to um, figurative, narrative, representational paintings. Uh, and really supportive of of that work, and I I feel uh, really at home there. So I feel lucky that I found uh, galleries that are supportive of my work. But it's not easy. It, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of conversations and meeting people. It takes a lot of walking around cities like New York, Los Angeles, London to see um, what the flavors of these galleries are like. You know, what, what are the, how do they present the work? What's the neighborhood like? Um, uh, what, are the, what, are, what are their other artists like? The kind of work, do I wanna be part of that community or not? Uh, it takes a lot of, of work. It is, it's probably the most difficult thing for the contemporary figurative realist to do is to fill that, that uh, part of their their the picture of their career is the gallery. It's really equivalent to a, a recording artist, a musician getting signed by a record label. It's you know you don't just walk in and say, oh, I'll I'll record with you guys, you know. And they say, great, you know. It's it's not it's it's the same thing. And I think for an artist having a gallery, um, it does feel like it validates your work uh, to to clientele and to the art world. Um, mm -hmm. At the same time, I think a big challenge for me, for everybody, for all artists and for all galleries is that uh, with the advent of social media and the power being put more in the hands of the artists, galleries are struggling to survive. Um, it's harder for them to sell paintings and to make their rents. Um, and uh, they have to really work hard and stay on their toes to make sales and to have an income to keep the galleries afloat. So we're at this weird moment where it's still very, I think it's it's important for an artist to have a gallery. It's just that, so that they can exhibit, they can have shows. I mean, I think that's a fulfilling part of being a painter. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's it, it's not okay to just make the paintings and not show them. They have to be exhibited. It's part of the process of being a painter, you know. And I think showing in a gallery is 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 the 
is really the best way to do it. I mean, if you can have a show in a museum, that's great, but that's very rare. Um, if you can have a show in a, a museum-like setting, you know, or a, an exhibition-like setting, it might be, um, you know, I think a lot of new painters will start out even showing in stores, retail stores or cafes. We all know about that. I mean, I think that should be done. You know, if that's your first step, do it. You know, have a show in a restaurant that wants to show off your work. Do it, you know, and slowly work up your way up the ladder. But it is a weird time where galleries are not necessarily thriving. They're still here. They're still among us. They're still important. Um, they still have really big, exciting openings. And there, those openings get reviewed in papers and magazines. Um, and they're well, you know, and the openings are well attended by big, exciting, with big, exciting opening receptions. So they're still relevant and important. And yet um, they have lost a lot of their power because of social media and artists deciding that, you know what, if I can become a famous artist just by putting all my work and energy into my social media account, which has happened in a lot of cases, mm -hmm. um, I'll just do that. I don't want to have to go and, and grovel at the foot of a gallerist or really the gallerist's assistant, you know. Uh, I don't want to have to grovel for some attention from them when I can just put my energy and time into my own social media account and I'll get 800,000 followers and I'll be famous. And then the galleries will come to me, you know, so that's a valid point. Yeah. Um, I don't know what's going to happen in the long run. What is it going to mean for galleries? And what is it going to mean for social media? Because I think social media is changing when, when they're noticing that they're making people celebrities for free. Uh, they kind of think, well, wait a minute, we have a, a real power at our fingertips. Maybe we should try to impose control on that, or maybe we should capitalize on that more. I mean, that's going to be an obvious outcome to that problem, too. I think there were a lot of lucky artists. I wish I was one of them who took Instagram seriously from day one when it was just this new thing that only a few people were doing. I mean, those people are celebrities now, you know, they, they have, they have followings that are in the millions. And um, it's simply because, you know, they got in at the ground level. They got in on day one. Uh, I remember hearing about Instagram at the beginning and kind of going, Oh gosh, not another one of these. I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do it. And, and I didn't get involved in it until it was already a serious, a force. And, and, um, you know, and I, and I've been penalized for that really, because, you know, now there's algorithms in place that restrict your growth, as we all know. And I still love Instagram and, and I need it and I'm, and I'm, I'm dependent on it. Um, but I wish I had gotten in earlier. I wish I had taken it seriously more early on. So that's another challenge. I think that, that, um, mm. that, that we all face, uh, that I face in marketing, uh, is, um, navigating the constraints of social media yeah absolutely and to your point yeah. about the galleries too it's like i feel like the pandemic also did a number on them uh yeah, a lot of galleries closed then um yeah, so i feel right. like the the few that are left are like they're 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 there they're hanging on mm -hmm. um but one of the one of the galleries that i really liked which was booth gallery it's gone oh, yeah. which is so sad oh, gone? <laughs> well, yeah they, i've been to booth the physical gallery, location yeah. closed um, yeah. and I don't know if they're going to reopen. I know that, uh, Paul Booth, he, I think he's still doing his tattoo stuff. Um, right. but I don't know if he's ever going to open up the gallery again. So I was a little sad when that happened. 
<laughs> yeah, that was a great gallery. They were supportive of realism and, and yes. uh, they had a great location in Manhattan. I saw a show there several years ago called um, something like The New Baroque. Uh, <laughs> it was curated by Robert Zeller. Um, and uh, it was a great show. It had Odd Nerdrum and Adam Miller and Bo Bartlett and Carl Dobsky was in it. And yeah, it, it was a great show. So mm -hmm. um, galleries like that, I think we need to get more of those back. We need more options. Yeah. And I know that I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining about the art world because a lot of us do. A lot of us realists that are traditional painters, we can get real whiny real fast <laughs> about the art world. And I understand. I totally understand the feeling that, you know, anyone who's listening to this, I totally understand. Um, but it is a way to sort of be shut down and excluded real fast. If you sort of make that your your whole MO and your identity that you're complaining about the art world, um, that's like the fastest way to definitely be excluded. I think that it's important to embrace everything that's going on in the art world, to look at it, take it seriously, just because it's not oil paint on canvas. It might be a video installation. It still has themes and topics and psychology and philosophy. And we should all be looking at that and thinking about it and not writing it off or discounting it as that's not real art. Um, we, I think that we, a lot of us classical, traditional painters realize we, need, we have to be careful that we don't go down that road. Um, because I've seen people that want to sort of, they sort of, they want to turn it into kind of a war, you know, like let's take up arms and reclaim the art world. And I, I feel you, you know, I understand the feeling because we've been shut out a lot, you know, and we've sort of been excluded or not taken seriously. So I'm not saying that those feelings are invalid, but I don't think the way to win that fight is to sort of take up arms and get angry about it. Um, yeah. It's, it's, you know, so it, it's not fair. I, I see that. I, I, I've heard a metaphor before where it's like, if you go into a music store when there used to be music stores, so maybe this analogy doesn't work anymore. <laughs> you go into a music store that existed in the nineties or the eighties. Right. And you ask the staff, like, I, I really would like, um, I'd like to find this. Um, let's, I'm just going to say jazz album. Okay. I want to find this album by Miles Davis. And they would say to you, Oh, we don't, we don't carry jazz at all. And then you'd say, well, we're a music store. And they'd say, well, yeah, we have, you know, we have everything from pop and rock and metal and reggae and country. We don't sell jazz. And it's like, well, why not? I mean, that's a very much the contemporary art world is like that. When you go mm -hmm. to all the, the top tier galleries in Chelsea, in New York, what you're doing is walking into a music store that has selected one type of music that does not sell that music. <laughs> and it seems very unfair and, um, and it's very confusing. I don't understand it. And people keep saying it's going to change. Um, they've been saying that since I was 18 and I'm 47 now. So I don't know that it's going to change. Um, uh, so I, I don't think that the right tactic is to say, let's take up arms and to revolt. Um, mm -hmm. I think you, I think you just have to make your best artwork. You have to paint in a way that's true for you. I think you have to paint in a way that taps into the deep themes that inspired you when you were a kid, a teenager, a college student that inspire you now. Like, be honest with yourself. Paint that subject matter. Make sure that you're passionate about it. 
do your best work, get it out there as much as you can, elbow your way in to the room, even if it's in a community that's, you know, that doesn't really understand what you're doing, but um, get yourself uh, a voice at the table, you know, and it's, it's hard, but it, um, and it takes work, but it can be done. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, you know, chugging along, keep going. Um, Yeah. 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 Uh, So I wanted to ask you, can you tell us about your online classes and workshops? Yeah, I've um, I've got a lot of uh, online workshops and classes and uh, and and uh, in person ones too, not just online. Um, in terms of marketing these days, I find it's hard. Um, I I feel like the audience might be confused because I promote this workshop and then this in person class and then this online workshop, and they're they're all they always need promotions and marketing and advertising, and I feel like. I worry sometimes that audiences are, you know, I don't, they don't know what particular workshop I'm promoting, but um, I've got a number of them going on. I think just at random listing randomly um, every summer, I teach an in-person figure painting workshop. That's a six day workshop in San Francisco. And this year is going to be from June 3rd to June 8th. And uh, it's in a studio, a large studio in San Francisco with a model, um, and we paint all day long from life, working with um, indirect painting techniques, meaning that simply that there's a, an underpainting followed by various um, full color painting techniques on top. Um, so that's that workshop in a nutshell. Um, another uh, class that I'm teaching online, which is live online, is for the New York Academy of Art. Uh, and that will be offered every semester um, for six class meetings in a row. So it'll be um, on Saturdays and it's a figure drawing class. So it's a class I call figure drawing concept and perception. And simply that when we draw the figure, when we work with figurative subject matter, a big part of what we're doing is concept driven things like understanding proportion, anatomy, or conceptualizing the figure as a series of volumes and masses. But then a big part of what we're doing is learning to treat our eye like a lens and how to interpret light and light behavior on form and how to, you know, achieve realist uh, qualities in our drawings and paintings. So, um, it, you know, we're doing the artist, the, the the figurative realist is really kind of doing both at the same time, uh, concept and perception. So that's a six class meeting uh, online Saturdays through the New York Academy of Art. Um, and you can find information about that on their website. Um, other workshops that I teach are with the Teaching Studios of Art, which is uh, has a big online presence. And they have uh, a number of workshops that I've taught in the past that are fully recorded, which, which work really excellently for students to purchase the workshop and to work along asynchronously on their own at their own pace. They follow along with the recording of the workshop. They have access to all the reference materials, all the demonstrations. And they're also able to meet with me by scheduling uh, independent Zoom uh, meetings that are 10 minutes long, where I give them quick critiques and feedback as they work their way through the projects. And also with teaching studios of art every year, I usually do about two or three uh, online live workshops of different topics. So we have another one of those that um, I'll be advertising for March, um, which should be full color 
a full color portrait painting um, using a full extended palette. Uh, other workshops, um, hope I'm not leaving anything out. I and I every semester I teach courses. Um, for those of you listening that are in California, I teach at the College of San Mateo, which is in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, I'm just wrapping up a semester where I have a portrait class and I have also a plein air painting class. And next semester, starting in January, I'm teaching life drawing, which is really figure drawing that's focused on anatomy and proportion and long poses. Uh, and I also teach my portrait class as well next semester. So yeah, and I think that's at a quick glance. I think those are all the workshops that I have on the palette, so to speak, right now. Yeah, I, I probably left one out, but I think that's oh. that, that's the gist of it. They're all available on my workshops page on my website. If you go to my website and find workshops, um, you'll see everything that I'm offering and everything that I have offered in the past, and you can get a full picture of my offerings that way. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of, what's your website? <laughs> My website is www.noahbuchananart.com. So um, it's my name with art at the end of it. And uh, it's a wonderful website. I love it. It's by Fazo uh, and Boldbrush. And that's, I think it's an excellent website. And I've been encouraging a lot of people to to um, check out their, their offerings. And uh, I've never been happier with a website before. So yeah i'm really yeah. proud of it so please visit yes and also your instagram my instagram is, is at noah.buchanan so there's just a dot between my first and last name um but please come take a look and follow if you can yeah awesome well thank you so much noah for the engaging you, and Laura. wonderful conversation this has been great yeah no, I've, I've, it's been great to meet you and i'm yeah, following you, you now and i love your work and um oh. this has been a great conversation i really appreciate your interest thank uh, you i love your I work too that, um, and yeah. thank you <laughs> of course